Today's episode of Our Close of Business is sponsored by Better Living Showcase. All the latest business news from WA, delivered daily. At Close of Business, News Briefing. Good afternoon and welcome to the At Close of Business podcast. This is Simone Grogan with your Friday afternoon headlines. As many as 300 Western Australians could fall behind on mortgage payments for each 25 basis point rise in interest rates, according to estimates by Illion Head of Modelling Barrett Hasseldine. Data from the credit agency has shed light on which Perth suburbs have the highest rates of mortgage arrears, where homeowners are more than 30 days behind on payments. Malaga in Perth's inner north is top of the pile, with 2.9% of borrowers behind on their home loans. Mahogany Creek and Middle Swan, both northeast of the CBD, are also high on the list, as was Merriwa near Wanneroo. Outside the metro area, Coolgardie, South Boulder and Cambalda East in the goldfields have even higher rates of arrears, although those locations have smaller pools of mortgages, making data less reliable. Western Australia has a higher level of borrowers in arrears than the national average, and the regions have been hit worse than Perth Metro, Ilian data shows. Mr Hasseldine said he expected loan delinquencies would worsen before they showed any signs of improvement. In Perth, inflation was 8.3% in 2022, higher than almost any other capital city. Mr Hasseldine said households in mid to lower socioeconomic regions were being hit harder, as were those who refinanced to maximum capacity during the pandemic. Banks generally assess mortgages with a 3% buffer, he said, but the Reserve Bank of Australia has raised the official cash rate by 3.25 percentage points. And in other news, Western Australia's Burrup Peninsula has been nominated for UNESCO World Heritage status, but it is unclear whether the recognition would hinder progress on two contested developments in the area. Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek, her state counterpart Rhys Whitby and members of the Murrajugga Aboriginal Corporation attended a ceremony at the Murrajugga National Park to make the announcement this morning. Prepared by Murrajugga Aboriginal Corporation and supported by the state and federal governments, they said a nomination had been submitted for the Burrup Peninsula, or Murrajugga, to UNESCO World Heritage Centre for consideration in late January. It proposes a boundary of 100,000 hectares of land and sea country should be given World Heritage status to become the second site in Australia listed on First Nations cultural heritage. The Burrup is home to many pieces of ancient Indigenous rock art, which the state government's Murrajugga rock art strategy says are likely between 4,000 and 30,000 years old. But it is also home to two significant WA industrial projects, Woodside Energy's $17 billion Pluto Energy Operation and a proposed $4.3 billion urea project led by Perdamon. Perdamon has already signed a 20-year contract with the energy giant to buy domestic gas from its Scarborough development and Victoria-based fertiliser manufacturer Incitec Pivot to purchase the urea. Pluto Train 2 and the Perdamon Urea project have faced strong criticisms over the potential harm emissions from the operations could have on rock art. That includes a recent protest from an activist group who spray-painted a Woodside logo over the century-old painting Down on His Luck at the Art Gallery of Western Australia in January. Regardless, construction at Pluto Train 2 is already well underway, and Perdamon's Urea project, which has recently been renamed Project Ceres, has also received ministerial approval. The approval comes with strict conditions regarding air quality management, and Perdamon has been told that it must ensure no air emissions have an adverse impact on neighbouring rock art. Minister Plibersek has also given the project the go-ahead, advising it had the support of Murrajugga Aboriginal Corporation. Neither Woodside or Perdamon, which both support granting the Peninsula World Heritage status, have given an indication of whether the standing will have any tangible impact on their operations. A spokesperson for Perdamon said all relevant factors have been included in the project's design and approval processes to enable the plant's safe operation.
A spokesperson from Woodside issued a similar response, saying the company supported the World Heritage listing on the basis of coexistence of heritage and industry. And in other news, a $25 million revamp of the Captain Sterling Hotel site in Nedlands, which includes a multi-storey supermarket, has been given the green light after more than two years in limbo. The Metro Inner North Joint Development Assessment Panel approved Fabcot's proposal to build Nedlands Square by a margin of four votes to one at its meeting this morning. Fabcot is the property arm of Woolworths. The application sought to demolish all existing structures on the site, except the Captain Sterling Hotel, to make way for a two- to three-storey Woolworths supermarket, a medical centre, a restaurant, a small liquor store, private gym, seven office tenancies, 382 car bays and a public plaza. Upgrades have also been proposed to the existing state heritage-listed Captain Sterling Hotel at the intersection of Sterling Highway, Florence Road and Stanley Street. Fabcot lodged a development application for the site in 2019, but a JDAP decided to defer the application during its meeting in June 2020. The meeting reports that the applicant and DAP participated in ongoing state administrative tribunal mediations since 2020, leading to the original plan being amended and resubmitted for determination in November last year. The updated proposal was given a $25 million price tag when lodged to the JDAP, but a document from 2020 said the project was valued at about $40 million and was expected to deliver up to 400 jobs in construction and operation. The JDAP approval came after a three-hour discussion at its meeting this morning to deal with the community's concerns on traffic and noise. And that's all from me this afternoon. Coming up next on the podcast, Jordan Murray and Matt McKenzie discuss the opposition's new strategy and Alcoa's water battle. Want to get more out of life? The Better Living Showcase has exactly what you're looking for. WA's leading health, wealth and happiness event, packed with live presentations, interactive performances, networking, investment, health and financial advice. You name it. It's all about helping you live your best life. March 18 and 19 at the Perth Convention and Exhibition Centre. Get your tickets now at betterlivingshowcase.com.au or contact 0404 756 347. You're listening to Actlers of Business. I'm Matt McKenzie and it's a Friday. So I'm here with Jordan Murray to reflect on the, the week at the top end of town, politics and business and what the leaders out there are doing. Jordan, how are you? I'm good, thank you. And it's uh, funny to think of West Perth as the top end of town because I guess it is. It goes up that steady incline on a hill. So Harvest Terrace uh, on the hill, top end of town. There you go. That was a clever one. Were you thinking of that before you came in today? I wasn't actually. And to be honest with you, I say that we reflect on the leaders in the top end of town, but as much as anything, we tell them how we might do it better on this podcast. And I'm not sure whether they take that in good humour or not. Jordan, to start us off, this week, Libby Metham has been kind of getting into her stride as the leader of the Liberal Party. She certainly has. So last week when she became leader, it was a bit of a a confusing at times, a bit of a, a messy transition to her leadership with her intention to remove Nick Garan as party secretary and from the front bench really being clouded by, first of all, her failure to do so in the first instance at her caucus meeting in which she was made leader, uh, and then in a series of media inquiries and press conferences in the days after where she insisted that he would not be part of her front bench and that he would be removed, uh, and then in a sense not really discussing what his role in the party would be going forward. Journalists had put to her that you know it was almost as if she was describing him as an independent member of parliament and not a member of the Liberal Party. 
and I'm quoting here, <laughs> when that question was put to her or that assertion, she said, that's your interpretation. So some very opaque words there. But yes, this week she has announced her new front bench. Nick Grant gone as party secretary. Steve Martin is now the party secretary. Uh, and Nick Grant gone from the front bench. And big winners here are Jorn Sidmer, who's taken on Mr. Garan's positions. He was the Attorney General, or Shadow Attorney General, I should say, uh, and had a variety of other similar roles, child protection. Uh, Jorn Simmer has taken on those positions as the Shadow Justice Minister, uh, notionally because he is not a lawyer and so cannot call himself the Shadow Attorney General. The other big winner was Steve Thomas. Uh, he's emerged as the Deputy Leader, taking over from David Honey. He keeps Shadow Treasury and he also picks up David Honey's energy duties, uh, which at a press conference on Tuesday he was very happy to speak to. Uh, I teased some answers out of him on nuclear energy, which I thought were particularly fascinating and I think show his uh, particularly fantastic grip of the subject. He's very interesting to uh, hear talk on those subjects. Not too many significant changes outside of that. Mia Davies has had a lateral move from leader. She's taken Mines and Petroleum from Shane Love, who took over from her as leader. Uh, and David Honey has picked up small business in exchange for energy, which obviously a bit of a lower profile job than energy was. Matt, how did you reflect on those changes to the shadow ministry? Some intriguing moves there. Jorn Simmer seems to be keeping the Metronet portfolio, which I think is, is probably a very good call because he's been very good on that. Uh, we know that uh, the, the cost has gone up substantially, and actually for quite a while there it kind of was all under the radar and there wasn't a lot, wasn't really being talked about very much, but he's picked it up and he's been asking questions in Parliament and putting out the press releases and all the rest of it, so he's getting a bit of traction. Probably good in that case that he's keeping that portfolio. Steve Thomas picking up energy is an interesting one because David Honey, I think, is someone who's very passionate about this topic. We know he loves his hydrogen and state development, and I think he's retaining state development. He's definitely retaining yes. hydrogen. Energy, though, moving to Steve Thomas. So it's intriguing. Why take energy away from David Honey? And I'm not sure. What I can presume is that if the opposition are going to be attacking on cost of living, and we're going to get to that in a second, maybe the idea is having Treasury and energy together might provide some benefits. So David Honey, instead of doing energy, will be picking up small business. We'll wait and see what that means for him. But as I just alluded to, it looks like cost of living is going to be the big attack point for the opposition at the moment. I think that's some interesting analysis there around uh, the roles that Steve Thomas has picked up. I believe as deputy leader, he gets to pick uh, which job he'd like to have. Uh, and so he's chosen Treasury and Energy, which are two fairly big uh, jobs to shadow, particularly when the two relevant ministers aren't in the chamber that he sits in. But nevertheless, I think you're right in saying that those connections there with cost of living, which is an issue the opposition has been very keen to hammer in the last fortnight, uh, are very strong. Now, one thing I've picked up on with the opposition over the past two weeks is that media appearances have certainly increased uh, from when David Honey was leader. Now, my memory of those uh, last two years says many of the times that Dr Honey was speaking, uh, it was at Parliament. It was on the front steps of Parliament. Uh, Libby Medham seems to be going out of her way to host uh, her press conferences in different areas of Perth. Including what looked like a backyard, judging by your photo, at the food bank facility. <laughs> in Heathridge. Well, you're not wrong there. It was in the backyard of a facility. Uh, but these have been some very politically smart areas that she's chosen, you know, areas that fall within the marginal electorates of Wanneroo, Joondalup, Kingsley, 
you know, seats that uh, I've described as marginal, they're not really marginal anymore because they're held by Labor on about 25%. But, but usually they'd be marginal. <laughs> under normal circumstances, they'd be marginal, and the Liberal Party has held them in recent memory under the Barnett government. So politically, uh, very smart moves to have press conferences there. And as well, the types of people who are appearing at these press conferences people from the private sector, such as Food Bank Chief uh, Kate O'Hara, uh, Accord West boss Evan Nunn, uh, are very smart. It shows that they're re-engaging with the private sector after what I assume was two years of, based on anecdotal evidence, people feeling as if there was a bit of a disconnect between the Liberal Party and its traditional uh, business base. So cost of living is the topic that they were seeking to address with those business leaders. Obviously, they come from the NFP sector. Uh, and talking about you know basic things like contributing to charities, the government contributing to charities and supporting charities in and around uh, not just Perth but outside of Perth in regional WA. Matt, you covered this week's interest rate rise, uh, another 25 basis points onto the official cash rate target. Uh, It seems like cost of living isn't going to be going away as an issue, at least at a federal level. Let me just throw in a a quick pointer to our website there as well because there's going to be a very interesting story today on mortgages and the impact of interest rates. Yeah, cost of living is the massive issue of the moment. And someone actually asked me about 15 months ago, they said, what would be the number one thing that the opposition should be focused on? And I said, it's got to be inflation. It's got to be got to be cost of living. And some people actually looked at me askew. In fact, I think I even said it on this podcast. And we saw in the months that, that followed after that, inflation really started to attract attention nationally. And especially here in WA, where in Perth, inflation is higher than pretty much any other capital city. And I think this is, a, this is an easy one for the opposition to target cost of living. People have made the observation to me that Lisa Harvey tried the cost of living angle a few years ago and it didn't fly so well. And I think in that particular circumstance, it was different because inflation wasn't as high as it is now. The pandemic changed things and then it became really high pressure for households. And so at that point, talking about cost of living made sense. But certainly pre-pandemic, when inflation was under control, cost of living. I think it's just sometimes it can be a go-to for oppositions. But right now, it's not just a go-to fallback thing. It's the issue of the day. And uh, the big question that the opposition needs to ask itself, though, is what is the solution? The issue is right. Cost of living is the right issue. What is the solution? If the solution is just bill freezes and electricity credits, well, That's not a long-term solution. And it might be popular, but I'm not sure that it's especially affordable to be doing that. Right now we have high high iron ore prices, so we can probably get away with it. It's not going to be the case forever. So the opposition needs to find ways to bring these costs down permanently. And I guess for Steve Thomas, that's going to be, surely that's got to be the thing he's judged by. If he's in energy and shadow treasury, then how do we bring down the cost of power prices for Western Australians and potentially how do we stop increases in gas prices, that'll be for him to think about. People will make the observation that it's too early before the next election to announce policies, fair enough, but just simply asking for more money and more handouts, not sure it's going to work, not sure it's a terribly liberal position and uh, would you continue to be doing it? I mean, when do you drop that? Do you keep that as your policy all the way through the next election and then in three years' time you're potentially you're still campaigning on it, or two years' time, you're still campaigning on it, and you have to hand out that money. Uh, we'll see how that one goes. But uh, hopefully, as we get close to the election, we'll start to see some really rich ideas from the opposition on that front. 
There was one this week, though, about charities, Jordan. Yes, there was. And I think just quickly there, it's interesting to think of structural reform because one of the things that impressed me most about Dean Nolder when he was uh, the shadow treasurer was that he was interested in reforming stamp duty. Now, that issue never really made it from that sort of thought bubble point, but I know that Steve Thomas is a deep technical thinker. He often gets very excited by economic data and even though he was calling for that freeze on charges the other day when he appeared with uh, Evan Nunn from Accord West. Uh, It'll be interesting to see what sort of structural reforms that he puts forward going into that election. Now, I think one of the things that risks uh, being an issue for the opposition is if it makes specific announcements, the state government can turn around and just match them and copy them and therefore neutralise that strength that may have come from identifying the issue in the first place. And I think good evidence of that was earlier this week when, as we were saying, uh, the opposition appeared with Accord West and made a call for $300 million in additional funding for charities to be delivered by the state government. And the next day, the state government went to Ronald McDonald House and pledged more funding for uh, that particular service, obviously a very respectable and important service in this state. But... Even though that was a very important announcement, it did seem to be overshadowed by some reporting from Nine Entertainment's WA Today earlier this week about something that's happening down in Serpentine, Jaredale. Matt, can you tell me a bit about that? Peter Milne, one of the great journalists in this state, holding business to account. Very interesting piece in WA Today, talking about a mining company, Alcoa, and a potential risk to the city's main water supply. Now, Alcoa... They dig out this stuff called bauxite. The bauxite is like a a rock or whatever you want to call it, and then they process it into alumina in Quinana, in Wagerup, and eventually it gets exported. It becomes aluminium, and then it goes into the cans that are manufactured to store my energy drinks, which I drink, (laughs) or Coca-Colas or whatever else. So aluminium, very valuable. And in fact, here's a funny thought. I've heard that the aluminium industry is lobbying for aluminium to become a critical mineral. So there you go. Every mining company with every commodity wants their mineral to be critical <laughs> so they can get some of that government largesse. But I digress. So the risk here is that the company is mining closer and closer to a major uh, water body, a major dam that provides about 20% of the state's drinking water, or at least the metro area's state drinking water. It's mining deeper than before. And so it has been said, and I haven't read the documents myself, but WA Today has reported that these documents show and meetings between the state government and Alcoa show that there's an increasing concern that something might go wrong at this site and it might cause what you might call pollution in the drinking water. Now, that could be, if you imagine they're using all this mining equipment, they might have a diesel spill, whatever else. If there's a heavy rainfall, it might wash into the dam. That could also mean when you, when you have this particular type of... When you have these pollutants in there, you also potentially get pathogens. I'm not an environmental scientist, but it doesn't sound too pleasant and it's not necessarily the stuff you want to be drinking. What I'm unsure of, and it seems at least so far none the wiser about, even given Mr McGowan's press conference, what I'm unsure of is how big this risk is. And it's important to always think about as a journalist you get these reports and often they will say you know here's a a a catastrophically bad risk but the probability is extremely low and we're doing xyz abc things to stop it now in this case it's not clear what the xyz and the abc are nor is it clear what the exact probability is because the response we've got from mark mcgowan and you've got to talk to that in a second 
Uh, I'm just going off your reporting, Jordan, but it seemed to me that he was saying, well, we monitor the drinking water and it's fine. Well, that's cool. It's a bit like, though, you're saying, well, I've batted for five overs, I'm at the crease, I've not been bowled a single bouncer, so I'm going to take my helmet off. And then, of course, next ball might be flying straight at your noggin and it's not going to be very pleasant. So the mere fact that the water is fine so far doesn't necessarily mean that the water will continue to be fine. However, we know that the state government has literally hundreds of people employed to maintain water quality. We've got these very vigorous environmental approvals processes. So my presumption is here that this is quite a low risk, but it is a risk based on the reporting we've seen, Jordan. You're right to say that the Premier was talking to current risk as opposed to potential risk, and he did say that Water Corporation does undertake testing and analysis and the water in Serpentine Dam is fine, right? But I think, as you're saying there, we don't really understand what the long-term risk of this is. And there was a lot of questions, and I think it's important to split it into those two because there were a lot of questions asked yesterday, particularly around, you know, is the state agreement that... Uh, Alcoa has signed uh, outdated at this point? Does it need to be revisited? And the Premier was insistent, no, it isn't, because there is no current risk to the water supply. And then, obviously, there is this ancillary issue of new activities taking place uh, and what effect that that'll have on the water long term. Now, there's obviously a lot of very confusing factors within this. Now, as I understand it, hikers can't even hike in the area, but some for some reason we can drink the water. I'm not fully across the details of them, but I'm sure that Nine Entertainment and WA Today will be on top of that in the weeks ahead uh, and put some pressure on the state government to find out what's going on with this. Well, I'm on both sides of the fence on this in the sense that I'm about to enjoy a soft drink from a can and some beautiful, fresh West Australian Water Corporation Water Jordan. Thanks so much for our Friday chat. Thank you. The latest business news delivered daily. Subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all the latest business news, visit businessnews.com.au. Today's episode of Our Close of Business is sponsored by Better Living Showcase.